Hello and welcome to a history of Alexander the Great, remastered. Episode 6, First Strike. We left Alexander having just crushed the revolts of Thebes and Athens in September 335 BC. Alexander made his way up through Greece back to Macedon during the winter, where several omens are said to have occurred. Alexander went to Delphi, the site of the famous Oracle of Apollo. Some of you may be familiar with how an oracle works, but for those of you not in the know, they essentially drugged up a priestess by making her smell crazy gases, then noted down her ramblings, and the priests interpreted this message as something sent from the gods. They could only do this on one day a month, and when Alexander showed up wanting to consult the oracle about his invasion of Persia, it wasn't the correct day. When the oracle explained that she couldn't give a response, Alexander, always the gentleman, tried dragging her himself to the shrine. Eventually, the oracle exclaimed, You are invincible, my son. Alexander was happy with this, and let the poor woman be. Another omen was that a statue of Orpheus, made of cypress wood, was sweating. Most were alarmed by this, but Aristander, who you'll remember correctly prophesied the birth of Alexander, said that this meant Alexander would do deeds which would be praised for a long time, and cause poets and musicians much sweat and toil to celebrate. The statue sweating was probably caused by condensation, so it's reasonable to say that it actually happened. Similar cases are frequently mentioned in classical literature. Now that Alexander obviously had the support of the gods, it was time to go out a-conquering. As the campaign season started in early spring 334, Alexander made his way towards the Hellespont, what we today call the Dardanelles. It is one of the crossing points between Europe and Asia in northwestern Turkey, the other being the Bosphorus, which is slightly to the northeast, which is the location of Istanbul. His force was about 30,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. There were also about 13,000 troops, which made up the advanced guard, who had already crossed the Hellespont giving Alexander a total force of 43,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry, although these figures are disputed. It wasn't just the army that Alexander had with him. For Alexander, this was as much of an adventure as it was a military conquest. He took with him many professionals to explore as much as he could, taking geographers, historians, astronomers, zoologists, etc., Alexander needed to quickly attack, as he was in deep economic trouble. Aristobulus, who is one of the authorities for both Arian and Plutarch, says that Alexander had 70 talents worth of funds for the army, and another that Alexander was 200 talents in debt. There is no way that we can accurately convert ancient choruses into modern denominations, so I'm just going to say Alexander was in financial trouble. 
Most of his debts had come from Philip, admittedly, but still, it was not a good situation to be in. Added to this, Alexander only had enough food for 30 days. Even though things were bad, he insisted on giving his Macedonian estates away to his friends and those in the army. Although this was seen as a sign of generosity, it is also a hint that he wasn't planning to return. He did, though, ensure that there was someone in Macedonia to look after his interests, by leaving Antipater there as regent. Parmenio had been tasked with transporting the army across the Hellespont, and 160 triremes and a large number of merchant ships had been assembled to do the deed. The army got on its boats and made its way across. When the boats approached land, Alexander threw a spear onto the earth, symbolising that Alexander was claiming Asia by force. The first stop in Asia was Troy. No doubt Alexander was drawn there by the legacy of his hero, Achilles. Alexander went to the grave of Achilles and anointed the column which marked his grave with oil. Then he had a race around it naked with his companions, as you do. Alexander saw the sights while in Troy, and he became quite depressed while there. He said Achilles was lucky to have Homer to glorify him forever, while Alexander didn't have anyone to glorify him. This is the reason Arian gives for writing his book, that he wants his book to do this, to be the book that people tie to Alexander, just as Homer had been tied to Achilles, and that this will make his book the greatest in Greek literature. I find this quite charming. Alexander had a good start in Asia, taking control of the surrounding towns, but he was not unchallenged. A group of Persian generals and governors had gathered at the town of Zelia, including the Greek mercenary Memnon of Rhodes, who was now part of the Persian ruling class. The Macedonians had the advantage of numbers, so Memnon argued against battle supporting instead scorched-earth tactics. Well aware that the Macedonians were short on both money and supplies, Memnon thought it was best to wait and let the Macedonians starve. The Persian governors, however, rejected this idea. There was no way that they were going to destroy their people's possessions, and they were also suspicious of Memnon for his connections to Darius the ruling Persian king of kings, not the Darius who launched the first invasion of Greece, thinking that this would cause him to delay the start of hostilities. While they were debating, Alexander was approaching, and the two forces would meet at the river Granicus. There is, of course, confusion over what happened with the ancient sources offering two accounts. First is the account offered by Arian, and Plutarch. As the Macedonians arrived at the battle site, they found the Persians on the far side of the river. Parmenia realised that to attack would be dangerous. They would have to cross in a loose column formation, which would be vulnerable to an enemy cavalry charge. Such an event so early on would be a disaster for the expedition, 
The best option would be, therefore, to stay on their side of the river for the night. Then, either the enemy would be nervous, as they would be outnumbered, and withdraw, allowing the army to cross unharassed the next day. Or, if the Persians did not withdraw, then they would cross upstream overnight, and surprise them in the morning. Alexander rejected this notion out of hand, saying that the Hellespont would be embarrassed if he was stopped by this mere trickle. To hesitate would show weakness, and give the outnumbered Persians courage. Alexander ordered his troops into battle stations, Alexander taking control of the Macedonian right, and Parmenio the Macedonian left. The phalanx was in the centre of the Macedonian line, with the cavalry on either side. Alexander had the companion cavalry with him on the right. Arian says that the Persians had 20,000 cavalry and 20,000 infantry, but modern sources estimate that this was probably closer to 10,000 cavalry and 5,000 infantry, including many Greek mercenaries. The Persians placed their cavalry in the front with the infantry behind, with more troops towards the Macedonian left, where they expected an attack from Alexander. The battle began with a movement on the Macedonian left. The light infantry and the cavalry fainted a charge, causing the Persians to reinforce their right. Then, Alexander and the companions charged into the Persian left. There was a fierce battle around Alexander, but he was able to gain the upper hand. Alexander went into the battle with two white plumes on his helmet, and was therefore quite easy to spot. Several Persians then charged at Alexander. Rosakes sliced off a part of Alexander's helmet, then Splithridates very nearly killed him, but Clytus was able to kill Splithridates first, slicing off his arm. Clytus was the commander of the Royal Squadron of Companion Cavalry, nicknamed Clytus the Black to differentiate him from Clytus the White, who was an infantry commander. While this was happening, a general advance occurred, Alexander and the right wing, having taken control of their area of the battlefield, began moving along the Persian line, attacking the cavalry which was engaged with the Macedonian infantry. A hole then appeared in the Persian line, and the Macedonians charged through it, engaging the Persian infantry, who were of a very poor quality. The cavalry and the infantry, then with most of their leaders dead, routed. The Greek mercenaries were left behind, abandoned by the Persians. They appealed to Alexander for a ceasefire. Alexander declined and ordered his infantry to massacre the mercenaries. Modern estimates are that 300 to 400 Macedonians were killed, and anywhere between 1,100 and 4,500 wounded. The figures 3,000 and 1,000 are given for Persian infantry killed and 2,000 wounded. That, I repeat, is the account of Arian and Plutarch, but there is an alternative offered by Diodorus. This account goes that the Persians were waiting for the Macedonians to cross the river. So, Alexander listened to Parmenio's advice and crossed upstream at dawn the next day. Here, the same deployments and events now happened, 
but next to the river rather than across it. There have been attempts by revisionist historians to combine the two accounts. Peter Green offers a version where the riverbank was guarded by the infantry, and they forced Alexander back on the first day. Then Alexander listened to Parmenio and crossed upstream, but the Persians got word of what happened, and the cavalry arrived before the slower infantry. Then Plutarch and Arian's accounts occur. I think this is a reasonable interpretation, but I don't know what happened. Either way, Alexander won the battle. The effect was huge. Firstly, there was the immediate economic advantage. Alexander, when he set off, was, in a word, broke. The spoils the Macedonians took were not huge, but they were enough for Alexander to send 300 shields, captured from the Persians, back to Athens, along with other spoils. Over these was the inscription, Alexander, the son of Philip, and all the Greeks, with the exception of the Spartans, won these spoils of war from the barbarians who dwell in Asia. See Plutarch, Alexander, chapter 16. This shows how distinct Sparta was becoming to the rest of Greece, as you will soon see. Alexander sent the rest of the spoils to his mother. How nice. This wasn't the biggest effect, though. Some of you may be familiar with the snowball effect. For those of you who aren't, it is describing a snowball. If you roll a snowball down a hill covered in snow, the snowball will pick up the snow and become bigger, which will make the snowball pick up even more snow, which will make it even bigger, etc, etc. This is a very easy way of building snowmen, but more importantly, by winning at the Granicus, Alexander's support began to increase exponentially, like the growth of the snowball. Those of you who remember when I spoke of the Ionian Greek cities up and down the western coast of Asia Minor will remember I said they hated, I repeat, hated Persian rule. They saw Alexander as their liberator, and most cities immediately threw open their gates to the Macedonians. Even the city of Sardis, which was the most powerful city on the Asiatic coast, and the place of the treasury for that region, surrendered, shortly followed by Ephesus. In fact, every city apart from Halicarnassus and Miletus surrendered. Alexander made his way to Miletus and placed his fleet of 160 ships nearby, commanded by the son of Parmenio, Nicanor. 400 Persian ships arrived, and Parmenio wanted to attack the fleet because an eagle had been seen near Alexander's ships. Rarely, though, Alexander was unusually restrained and didn't attack, instead deciding that the sea battle could be won from the land. Alexander attacked the city, and while the Milesians were defending themselves, ordered Nicanor to attack through the harbour. The Milesians were overwhelmed, and Alexander took the city. The Persian fleet tried to destroy Alexander's, but failed at this. Alexander then decided to disband his fleet. 
the Persians were completely dominant on the sea, and there was no way he was going to have a decisive victory in a naval battle. He instead pursued a policy of defeating the Persians at sea from the land. The Persians were there, on the sea. There was nothing Alexander could do about that. He therefore didn't want to advance into the heartland of the Persian Empire, as the Persian fleet and the other Persians on land could cut off his supplies and leave him vulnerable. So he couldn't go straight into attacking Persia and going after their king of kings, Darius. He needed to control the Mediterranean. This was his idea. He would defeat the fleet by taking control of all their ports on the Mediterranean, and only then attack the Persian heartland. If you've enjoyed the show, why not support it? You could buy an ebook of the series for Amazon Kindle, only £1.99 in the UK, and $2.99 in the US. It is available, though, on other Kindle stores. You could also buy a t-shirt um, with various things on from the podcast at thehistoryofpodcast.spreadshirt.co.uk. Join us next time when Alexander will continue his march into Asia as we introduce his great foe, Darius, King of Kings. Kings.